All right, how's everybody doing? Good. Man, so glad you guys are here. We are in week 15 of our Give Love a Try series, and it has been an incredible series for me and my own personal walk and, and for my family, and it's been an incredible series for our church. And man, I just want to get started by celebrating some of the things that we've seen God do through the Give Love a Try series. Uh, we've been able to really uh, respond, and you guys have really stepped it up, and so I just want to just take a minute and just celebrate a little bit of what we've seen God do. Uh, through the Give Love a Try series, we have uh, we started early in the series, we dedicated 33 kids by partnering with 28 families as they committed their households to raising their children in a gospel-centered home. So that's awesome. We sponsored 524 more Compassion Kids, and with that, we wrote 500 additional letters to kids all over the world telling them how much God loves them. Our current compassion sponsorship total is 9.4 billion kids that we sponsor as a church. That's not true. It's like 3,500, but we are tracking <laughs> right toward, we are heading right toward 9 billion. Uh, we baptized 237 people at the beach. Uh, yeah, that was right. That's right. Over 2,000 people attended um, to cheer for their new family members, which uh, if you were there, man, it was stinking awesome. Uh, we loved a struggling part of our community where we, that we had not been able to engage with prior to this. Uh, and through a local mission trip, we were able to see over 100 people serve, over 4,800 man hours spent in service. We baptized an additional 30 people in that community who professed Christ while we were able to serve there uh, with them. So that was really awesome. One of y'all needs to go plant a church there. I'll meet you down front after when you respond to God's call. Uh, we have processed... Uh, we have processed more than 48,000 donations to uh, Hope's Closet. And man, most of y'all aren't even dropping off junk. You're like bringing good stuff. So thanks for that. Even though I was down there the other day and I saw somebody turn in some used underwear. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, just kidding. No, most of y'all are turning in great stuff. Keep your junk at home in your three-car garage. Bring us the good stuff. Uh, we donated... More than 8,728 pounds of food, equaling 7,273 meals by partnering with Feeding Northeast Florida to help bring some relief and some help to some families around the Jacksonville area that may not be able to have access to that uh, without it. So, uh, great job. We've had, four we've had people serve on mission trips in four different countries, sharing the gospel and making Jesus famous all over the world through the Give Love a Try series. So, great job, Church of 1122. Thank you guys so much for responding and for stepping up. Uh, great job. I have one more thing that I want to celebrate before we dive into the text, and that is that uh, my family and I have officially been here for, uh, for a year now. We recently turned our one-year anniversary of living in, in Jacksonville. And uh, yes, for us, that's a, that's a cool deal. Yeah, thanks for the three of you who care. Um, and so we really, we really were pumped about it. Um, but honestly, when I was moving down here to Jacksonville... There were some things that I wasn't prepared for. Uh, there were some things that nobody told me about living in North Florida that I kind of had to learn uh, the hard way. Prior to living uh, here, I lived in Alabama in two different cities. I lived in Nashville for a little while and lived in Atlanta and then most recently here. So I've kind of been doing a tour of the Southeastern Conference and, and uh, we like it here, but there are some things that I wish I had known moving down here like uh, there are more Ford F-150s in this town than there are people. I mean, how's that possible? Why do you need three Ford F-150s? It just doesn't make sense. I learned since moving to North Florida that camouflage is actually, is actually acceptable attire to a wedding. I, I lived in Alabama, and they didn't wear camo to weddings. Now, you never knew if you were going to a wedding or a family reunion, but still, hey, uh, I didn't know. 
uh, Jacksonville, I lived in Georgia the majority of my, my life, and, and uh, nobody ever told me while living in Georgia that Jacksonville was actually the capital of South Georgia. Uh, I just never knew. It was crazy. I really wish somebody had told me that there were only two seasons here, February and summer, right? I packed long sleeve shirts and things called jackets. You know, they're supposed to keep you warm. I know you don't know about that down here in Florida, but it's crazy. Um, and honestly, I had heard of heat stroke before I moved here. I'd heard about it. But nobody ever told me that you could actually choke to death on humidity. I walk out of my house the other day and I was like, am I swimming? What? Like, what is going on here? Uh, even with all its, its interesting parts and with all, all the uniqueness to living in this part of, of Florida, uh, my family and I really love it here and we've actually really, really enjoyed being here. We love this church. We love the city. We love what God's doing here. No matter where I've been, no matter where I've lived, no matter where I've traveled around the world, every people, every region has some unique qualities or some distinctives that set it apart. Um, Jacksonville's no different than anywhere else I've lived in that. There are some things that make this place special or u- unique. Not necessarily better or worse, but they're just distinctives that make it, make it what it is. And in the same way, as we read our text today and we go through the last part of 1 John... We're going to read about some distinctives, some qualities, some some unique characteristics that followers of Jesus have that everyone else does not. And so let's dive into 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. 1 John 5, 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 13 is the entire point of the entire letter that John wrote. The whole letter has been about, how, about the fact that we can know, we can know that we know that we know that we can be confident in the assurance of our faith, that we can fully know and that we can fully be confident in that we know God and that we will spend all of eternity with Him. That's what the whole letter is about, is to produce the certainty of faith that comes in following Jesus. For me, this knowing, this certainty, was a real struggle for for a lot of years. I mean, I remember in my early 20s that I was traveling around preaching and leading youth conferences and speaking at churches and serving on mission trips, and I was doing a lot of good works. And I I remember struggling with, with serious, serious doubt amidst all of my all of my good deeds. I remember that this doubt and this guilt and this regret, it really ran rampant in my heart and in my mind. And it was a serious, serious struggle for me. I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would just cry and cry because I was so unsure of my relationship with God. I remember that the the doubt was such a force in me that I woke up one time at like three o'clock in the morning and and I took a shower for like 30 minutes and I was just trying to wash myself somehow, trying to subconsciously clean myself and make myself feel better about my relationship with the Lord. Doubt was a real struggle for me. Certainty was a target that I just could not hit. I mean, it was almost like I got to the point where I almost believed that this whole faith thing was honestly just a crapshoot and that I was just hoping that on Judgment Day I was going to roll sevens and get lucky and God would let me in. It was a serious struggle for me. Now, ten years removed 
from God setting me free and delivering me from that struggle, I, I believe now that this struggle, this questioning, this wondering, this season of doubt was something that God used in my life to produce certainty. It was a legitimate season. It was a legitimate force that God used in my life to produce certainty. But make no mistake about it, whether it is through a season of struggle or doubt or something else, the end goal for God is that you be certain that He is faithful and that He will forgive and that He will meet you wherever you are and He will not leave you there, but He will change you forever. The end goal for God is that we can be certain in our faith. That we can be fully assured of the salvation that He provides. And here's why. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The Scripture says that we are to, to test ourselves, that we are to work through our faith, that we are to ask ourselves hard questions to see if our faith is legitimate or if we are just a poser. We are supposed to walk through a period of time, or, or, or maybe it's different periods of time, but we are supposed to go through and ask ourselves the hard questions of faith to see if we are really followers of Jesus or if we are just faking it. It's important that we test our faith is what Paul says. Meaning this, that there are people who fill the seats of churches all over the country, including 1122, that are what I would call unnecessarily troubled. They are unnecessarily troubled like I was. They are people who are actually faithful followers of Jesus, but they are troubled about whether or not they will spend eternity with God in heaven. For those people, I want you, and I believe that God wants you today to leave here fully assured of His work in your life. After all, God really is a good dad. God is a really good dad. Why would He want His children to doubt his goodness. I mean, I have two daughters, and when my daughters were born into this world, with them was born an unconditional love. On my best attempts, this love is unconditional. I love them no matter what life path they choose, no matter where they go, no matter what they do, my love for them will remain a constant. I may be disappointed at times, but I will still love them. I mean, I do not raise my, my girls to doubt whether or not I love them. I lavish affection on them. I lavish affection on them. I do not want them to go anywhere to look for love except for daddy. Right? When they come home, I am hugging and I am kissing. When they are talking, I am looking to the best of my ability. I don't do it perfect, but my heart's desire is that they know they are unconditionally Loved. I don't raise my children like I train my dog or like I would a horse. I don't dangle a carrot in front of them and just say, hey, if you do good, if you get better, if you try hard, then I will love you. They are loved no matter what they do. And if I am capable of that, even in the smallest form, how much more? How much more do you believe that God is faithfully and unconditionally in love with His children? God is a really good dad. And God wants us to know Him. He wants us to, to know Him, but even in His desire for us to know Him, in His sovereign wisdom and in His sovereign planning, He has set it up that there is only one way by which we can know Him. So God wants us to know Him, but He has set it up that there is only one way by which we can know Him. 
So if we are to test our faith so that people who are unnecessarily troubled can rest assured and be confident in their faith and in God's faithfulness, then there's another group of people. There's another group of people who I would say are falsely secure. So there's the unnecessarily troubled, and then there's the falsely secure. Falsely secure people are people who put their their hope for eternity on an action or on a work or on a deed or on a religious activity. And in my tradition, this religious activity was known as the sinner's prayer. So all my life, I've known people who prayed this sinner's prayer and asked Jesus to come into their heart, and they rely on that praying of that prayer as though that prayer is what produces eternal security. And maybe in your tradition, it wasn't a prayer. Maybe it was a a class, or maybe it was a ceremony, or maybe it was getting baptized, or maybe it was any kind of religious activity or work. And, And if you place your trust and faith in that work, the Bible says that works cannot produce salvation. That if we put our whole trust or our hope in a work, or in an action, or in a deed, then we will be tragically mistaken. And we are tragically mistaken. Matthew chapter 7 talks about a group of people who will stand before the Lord one day and they will say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will say these terrifying words, depart from me for I never knew you. But they will say, but Lord, we we cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles in your name. We did all these works. Look at all we've done. And he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. If I could culturally contextualize that for us, it would sound something like this. It would say, it would say Lord, look how great my kids turned out. Lord, look, I, I was baptized. I went to beach baptism. I attended church. And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because, because works, through works, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible. Only faith is what pleases God. The Bible tells us that that it is only through faith that it is possible to please God, no matter how good the work, our hope cannot rest on works, but only in faith. Only in faith. So we're going to see as we walk through this today that we are not eternally secured by praying a prayer or any other action or any other work. You are only eternally secure by repenting and believing the gospel. Now, I will say this, that you can express biblical repentance and belief through a prayer. But it is not the prayer that does the work. It is not the prayer that saves. But you can express repentance and belief in a prayer. I did, but it is not the prayer that saves. It is possible to repent and believe without praying a sinner's prayer. It is possible, just like it is possible to pray the prayer and never repent and believe. I know that's a little heady, but the target I'm shooting at is this. Can we be confident that if we have put the weight of our eternity wholly and solely on Jesus Christ and His work on the cross and through the resurrection that we are saved? Can we be confident that if we have done that, then we will be eternally secure with God? John tells us, yes, we can. John tells us, yes, we can be confident in the knowledge of our salvation, but that confidence only comes one way, and that is through God's will. Verse 14 says this of 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, 
we know that we have the request we have asked of Him. So we can have this confidence according to His will. So we have to ask the question, what is God's will in regards to how man can be redeemed, can be saved, can be eternally secure? What is God's will? If we were to only know Him through His will, what is His will? Well, Romans 10 says it like this, that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and you are saved. There's a really key phrase here in Romans chapter 10, and I want you to underline it or lipstick it or highlight it in your phone, whatever, however it is you do it. There's a really key phrase, and it's in verse 9. And it says this, Declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is a key phrase to being eternally assured in Christ. I want you to notice that it does not say declare with your mouth that Jesus is real. It doesn't say declare with your mouth that you believe Jesus was good. It doesn't say declare with your mouth that you want to go to heaven. All those three things are fine, but that is not what the text says. It says if you have declared with your mouth the belief that you hold in your heart that Jesus is your Lord, and that the things He said apply to you, and that the things He did counted for you, then you have been saved by God and for God's glory. Jesus says that out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so if we have confessed His Lordship from a place of belief in our heart, then we have been saved by God and for God's glory. That is great news. That is great news because it doesn't require any magical potion. You don't have to get the words right in a prayer. You don't have to perform any activity. You don't have to attend a class or come and do a song and a dance. Nobody has to tap you on the head. None of that stuff. It says that if you confess with your mouth that you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that the things He said about Himself are true and that the things He did counted for you, if you believe that and you surrender to Him as your Lord, then you will be saved. There is no religious ceremony necessary. So all we have to do is believe that Jesus is who He says He is and did what He said He did. And I have to believe that His claims are true and that what He did counted for me. Because it did count for you. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus' blood fell from the cross, His blood counted for all the sins of all the sinners everywhere. It counted for everybody everywhere. It counted for you and it counted for me. Do you see that Lordship is the issue. Anybody that I've ever met with that struggled with doubt, that struggled with certainty, it was always and it will always be an issue of lordship. Lordship is the issue. You see, God's will in the salvation of His people is that Jesus be known as Lord of all forever and ever. Amen. God's will in the salvation of His people. So God's will for you, God's will for me, God's will for all of those who will come to a saving belief in His name. God's will for them is that they know Jesus as Lord of all forever. So here is the assurance from God. When you have declared Jesus as Lord, He has saved you. Jesus did not do all the work on the cross to leave things to chance. He did it to secure the eternities for all those who believe on His name and in His claims forever. So now if you're a thinking man or if, you, if you're a person who likes to ask questions, you have to say, okay, look, 
I get it. Believe, confess, Jesus is Lord. But how do I know if I've done that? All right, I get it. If I want to know that I know that I know that I know, then, then I have to do these things. But how do I know if I've actually done that? Well, that's a great question. There's a verse for that. Let's keep going. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To, the, to, the, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So here's what I believe that John is working toward. John writes that there are, we just read that there are two types of sin. A sin that, that does not lead to death and a sin that does lead to death. This is a really important distinction to make because it is in our response to the power and the presence of sin in our lives that reveals to us what really is the Lord of our lives. I want to say that again. It is in the response to the power and presence of sin in our lives that reveals to us what is actually the Lord of our lives. So there are some marks, there are some distinctives, there are some unique characteristics or qualities that followers of Jesus have that no one else does. These qualities, these distinctives, they do not save. Only faith in Jesus does that. They do not save, but they are proof that you have surrendered under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So how do you know? These markers, these indicators let us know if we have surrendered under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The distinctive number one for people who have, who have surrendered their lives under the Lordship of Christ, distinctive number one is this, the struggle against sin. The struggle against sin. The question is not, do we sin? Of course we do. Of course. Without a doubt. The question is, do we struggle against sin? That is a completely different category. You see, prior to God's invasion of the human heart, prior to God coming down and breathing His Spirit into you, you did not struggle against sin. You could not struggle against sin. You were actually sin's captive. You may have had a little bit of regret, or you may have a little bit of guilt, but there is no active struggle against sin, meaning that there is no active part of you that wants to please anything but you. You see, self-pleasure and self-seeking and self-glorification, these are what sin is. And so when self is the primary pursuit, then you know you are in captivity to sin. And prior to God's invasion, that was your only option. But God in His infinite grace, if He has shown up and breathed grace into your heart and He has made you, brought you from death to life, He has now given you what the Apostle Paul calls the freedom from sin. The freedom from sin. Meaning this, that when God regenerates the Spirit, when God breathes life into what is dead, that you now have another option. You are no longer a slave to sin. Whereas before God's invasion, you didn't have another option. Now, through Christ, through God's Spirit, you have another option. You see, where sin and the pleasure of sin was your only option, where self-glorification and self-seeking and self-gratification was your only option, now God has made it 
possible that you have a new option. And this option is called the Spirit, which is life. When God breathes His Spirit into us, it is life. You now can resist the devil. You now can flee the sin that so easily entangles. And I want to pause and just say this. There's a group of people here that are in the middle of living through the pain and the repercussions and the the sickness and the damage of generational sin. Whether it be generational abuse, generational addiction, generational self-hatred, generational fear. Whatever it is, there are people here who have been living through this for generations. It has been handed down from generation to generation and generation and has now landed in your lap. And you are entangled in this generational curse. I want you to know this. I want you to know that by the power of God through the blood of Jesus, you can be free. You can be free. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm actually saying the opposite. I'm saying it is going to be a struggle, but because of God's grace and because of His blood, the blood of Jesus, you can be free. You can break the chains. You can stop the cycle. It can end with you by God's grace through Jesus today. It can stop. You can be free. You can be free. You will never be fully free this side of eternity from the temptation to sin. You will never be fully free from the temptation to sin. But you can now fight back. You can fight back. When you are marked with lordship, when you are marked with the lordship of Christ, you will fight back. You will fall without a doubt, but you will also fight. This fight, this fighting back, this struggle against sin is fueled by what is known as the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Conviction, you may want to write this down. I thought it was pretty good. I'm sure I stole it from somebody, but this is it. Conviction, conviction is the friction produced when the light of God's glory starts to push out the darkness of the human heart. Conviction is the friction produced when the light of God's glory begins to push out the darkness of the human heart. Do you see that light and dark are opposing forces? Where there is light, the darkness cannot overcome. Light and dark do not work in unity. They work in opposition. They cannot exist at the same place at the same time in the same way. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, what fellowship, what fellowship can light have with darkness? John 3 says that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and that people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Jesus says that I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Light and darkness do not work together. They cannot work together. Where there is light, the darkness cannot overcome. Where there is darkness, there is only one hope to see, and that is if somebody would show up and turn the lights on. When the lights are on, the darkness can creep in the corners, without a doubt. It can creep and creep and creep in the corners, and it can hide in the shadows. But it cannot overcome. When the lights are on, the darkness cannot overcome. Light and dark just don't work. Think about it like this. Have you ever been just passed out sleeping? I mean, just feeling 
right. You know, you're all rolled up in your sleep number. And you're hugging your body pillow. And you're feeling all good. You got your air conditioning set on like a, like a smooth 68 degrees. You're double blanketed. You know, you're just feeling right. Ceiling fans on high. And you are just out, man. You are in another land. You got a little drool going. You know, just feeling it. And then somebody just like walks in, whether it be your spouse or your kids or your parents or whoever, and they just, bam, they just turn the lights on. And you're like, oh, you know, you're just like, I can't. You know, have you ever, like when that happened, have you ever stopped and just been like, baby, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in here and turning the lights on. I mean, I ain't feeling the love. I was sleeping, and you came in to turn the lights on. I know you did it because you loved me. Not because you were thinking about your to-do list, and you're trying to get me up to do stuff. Because you love me. I know. And there was toys on the floor from the kids, and you didn't want me to trip over that. And you wanted me to get up and to enjoy another day that I've been so richly blessed with by God. Do you ever do that when somebody comes in and turns the lights on? No. Right? You roll over, and... You're yanking the covers and you're kind of huffing and puffing and you're bringing out, breathing out your stank kung fu breath a little bit harder and you're just like, you're just plotting your revenge. You know what I mean? You're just pillows on the head and you go to a bad place. I know, right? That's because light and dark don't work. When you're in complete darkness and somebody cuts on the lights, there's a little bit of pain. It's called friction. It's when the opposing forces of light and dark run into each other in our hearts, in our souls, there's some friction produced by the Holy Spirit. When the light invades the dark, there is a little bit of pain. It's a little bit uncomfortable because they're opposing forces. See, you see, conviction is friction. Conviction is not guilt. It is not regret. You see, guilt wants you to work harder at doing better. Guilt wants you to try harder. It wants you to self-modify. Regret wants you to go back and change the past. Both of which you cannot do and they will not work. You cannot self-modify. You cannot make your, you can't work harder at doing better and it work. You can try, but you will fail every time and you cannot go back and change the past. What's in the past is done. So conviction is not guilt and it is not regret. Conviction is something different. Conviction is what God uses to change our heart's direction. It's what God uses to change our heart's direction. This change in direction is what is known as repentance. Repentance is the key message that Jesus preached. He didn't preach happiness. He didn't offer safety or comfortable living. He definitely didn't preach health, wealth, or prosperity. He didn't offer a political party or a cause-based agenda. He said, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. And he said it over and over and over and over again. Jesus said, repent. Change directions. Change your thinking. Change kingdoms. Open your eyes. Come alive. However you want to say it, it means this, that if you are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, then you are new. If you have surrendered yourself to the lordship of Jesus, then you are new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if you are in Christ, 
You are a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. Which means this, that you and I, we were on a one-way road, a one-lane road headed toward pain and suffering in the, in the direction of self-destruction and God and His infinite grace. He showed up and He hijacked our car and He put us on a new road headed in a new direction. That's what it means. It means that I am not heading this way any longer. I am now headed this way. I'm not heading towards self-pleasure and self-glorification. I am surrendered to head in a new direction, which is life and glory, where there was going to be pain and suffering. You have now turned me around, and I am headed toward life. By your grace and your goodness. The struggle against sin this newness provides is marked on the soul of someone who has surrendered to Jesus. It's a guarantee. I want to be really, really clear about what I am saying, what John is saying, what John's not saying, what I'm not saying. What we are not saying is that you can, is that you can commit a sin that's so dark or vile or egregious that you, cannot, that you can be out from under the saving arm of God's grace. We're not saying that you could do something that would ever, ever make you unreachable by God's grace because there's nothing you can do that God's grace cannot, God's grace cannot find you. There's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you can grow. Believe me, friends, that wherever sin runs deep, God's grace runs deeper. Wherever sin runs deep, God's grace runs deeper. I'm also not saying that followers of Jesus are not sinners, that they do not sin. I'm not saying that at all because we do. We sin. No matter the sin, no matter the, the, the violation, no matter the, the breach in the relationship with God, God's grace can find you there. And when it does, it will not leave you there. Wherever it finds you, it will meet you right in the middle of your sin-stained mess, but it will not. It will not leave you there. I mean, you could have murdered, robbed, stolen, lied, cheated your whole way through life, and you could be in this moment right now, and you could say, Jesus, I'm over it. I'm over it. I'm tired of pursuing myself and my own pleasure and I am surrendering my life to you. I believe what you said about you. I believe what all the things you said are true and all the things that you did counted for me. I believe that and I surrender myself under your Lordship and Jesus will welcome you into the family with open arms. With open arms. You cannot send your way out of God's grace. No way. No how. God loves you so much that wherever you are, He will meet you, but He will not leave you there. John is saying that the sin that does not lead to death is the sin that has been covered in the blood of Jesus through repentance. He is saying that there is a sin that does not lead to death, and that is the sin that has been covered by the blood of Jesus through repentance. John goes on to talk about another kind of sin, a sin that does lead to death. He says in, in, in verse 18, he talks about this, and what John is saying is that it is not possible it is not possible to live a life that habitually and willfully and deliberately pursues self-glorification, self-pleasure, sin. It is impossible to live that life, your whole life, unrepentantly, and be surrendered under the Lordship of Christ. It's impossible. You cannot live your whole life for the dark and have any source of of light. You cannot habitually and willfully and deliberately pursue the kingdom of self and be under the lordship of Jesus Christ your whole life. You cannot do it. Hebrews 10.26 says this, that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of the judgment that is to come. There is a sin that leads to death, and it is the sin of not repenting and surrendering to Jesus as your Lord. This is called the rejection of the Holy Spirit. There is a sin that leads to death, and it is the sin of not repenting and surrendering to Jesus as your Lord. Again, I am not saying that once you surrender to Jesus, you don't sin. I am saying that once you surrender to Jesus, you actually struggle against sin. Sin is no longer the standard. It is no longer the delight. It is no longer the primary means by which gratification is had. As God opens your eyes and the wider and wider God begins to open your eyes, the, the more clearly you begin to see that sin is a disease and that there's an enemy who is out to steal from you, who is out to kill you, and who is in game is to destroy you. And He is going to use you to do it. As God starts opening your eyes, you begin to see clearly that sin wants to take from you way more than you want to give. Salvation does not mean sinless perfection. Not at all. Salvation does not mean sinless perfection. It just means that, that you now have a new direction. So Mark 1, distinctive one of those who are faithful followers of Jesus, who have surrendered under His Lordship, Mark 1 is that we struggle against sin. That's distinctive one. Distinctive two is this. If you love Jesus, you love what He loves. If you love Jesus, you love what He loves. And all of Jesus' affections start with this. Jesus really, really, really loves God. I mean, He loves the Father. They have had this love fest thing going on for a long time. And they're going to have it going on for a long time. That's a whole other sermon. But believe me, it's been going on perfectly for a long time. Jesus loves the Father. I mean, God told Jesus to leave glory and to come down here to put on our skin and to live in this place and then to die a horrendous death on the cross. And Jesus did it. And there even came a point in Jesus' life where Jesus looked at God and was like, I don't know if I want to do this. And He said, but not my will. Yours be done. Even when Jesus didn't want to, He still did what the Father said. So we know that Jesus loves the Father. He loves the Father. I mean, my wife wants me to go to Atlanta next week. And I'm like, eh. Yeah, I don't know. It's like a six-hour drive. I'm a beach person now, right? I drive five minutes. I'm mad. I pull up at a red light, and I think I'm stuck in traffic. You know? It's a whole different way of living down here. And my, but because I love my wife, I'm going to go. So you know, that, you know that Jesus really loves God because He did what God said. Even when He didn't want to. And in the same way, you know you love Jesus because you do what He says even when you don't want to. Culture really jacks this thing up. I mean, for example, there are a lot of people who say, I am a Christian, but I don't really want to do the things that Jesus said. Or, I want to pick and choose and only do the things that make me feel good. So, I, I, I get what you're saying, I think, but it kind of makes me scratch my head. And so let's ask it this way. Can you be a follower of Jesus and not follow Jesus? Can you be a follower of Jesus and not follow Jesus? Jesus says, no, you can't follow Him without following Him. I know that sounds elementary, but it's actually life-changing. John 14, 15 says that if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. John 14, 23, said, Jesus says, whoever does not love Me will not keep My words. 
We have read over and over and over again in 1 John that if we love Him, we will keep His commands. Do you see that obedience is the fruit of love? Obedience is the fruit of love. Salvation happens in a moment of surrender. It happens in one moment in time. Maybe God walked you through a season. Maybe God just hit you like a lightning bolt out of nowhere. Whatever it is, in a, in a moment in time, salvation happens as we surrender under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But that surrender keeps on surrendering for the rest of your life. It's called the perseverance of the saints. We are absolutely unequivocally saved in one moment, but when we surrender to His Lordship, we spend the rest of our life fleshing through what it means to live as Jesus is the Lord. We don't get it right every time. We don't get it right. We may get it wrong more than we get it right, but if you peel back the layers of our hearts, our heart's desire would be that Jesus be the King and He be the, the Lord. When you love Jesus, you love what He loves. Loving Jesus is confidently realized when, in that we love the longer we love Jesus and the longer, the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we begin to understand what Jesus loved. Now, that's a really important thing to note because, look, you may be new to this whole Jesus is Lord thing. No problem. I'm so glad you're here, seriously. And you're like, I want Jesus to be Lord, but I have no idea what He loves. I, the first time I ever heard Jesus is Lord was like 36 minutes ago when you said it. Right? So, no problem. Here's the deal. I would encourage you to keep hanging out here. We, we do a whole lot of things here, but more than anything, we talk about Jesus a lot, right? We talk about Jesus a lot, so if you want to learn about what Jesus loves, then, then hang out here. Don't feel like you should know what you don't know. Just dig your heels in, and you will realize this very quickly. For every one step you take toward God, you will realize that He has run a marathon in your direction. James promises us that if we draw near to God, He will draw near to us we love what jesus loves and jesus loves the father but jesus also loves sinners i don't know about you but i'm really glad that jesus loves sinners i'm so glad that jesus loves me and that because of him he's made it possible for me to love him back in verse 19 john writes that this world is full of lies and under the power of the evil one we call this world all kinds of names Sinners, the lost, unbelievers, children of disobedience, unrepentant, seekers. The, the, the culture labels them all kinds of things. It does not matter what you label people who are far from God and who are rebelling against God. It doesn't matter what you call them. Jesus loves them. Jesus said that He came to seek and save that which is lost. He said that He did not come to call the, uh, the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. He said that He did not come for the people who are well, but to, make, to, but to heal Sick people. He says that he did not come to judge the world, but he came to rescue the world. Jesus loves sinners. And I believe that on the mark of the souls of those who have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ is this deep, heart-burning desire for lost people to be saved, for dead people to be alive, for blind people to see, for sinners to repent and to change kingdoms. When we love Jesus, we love what He loves and we want what He wants. That's distinctive too. One is that we struggle against sin and two is that we love what He loves. In verse 20, John ends with this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He who is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
John finishes his letter by saying this, you can know that you know that you know. If I've heard that once, once I've heard it a million times, that question, do you know that you know? And John says, you can know that you know that you know that you are one of God's adopted children. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. And you can know, but you can only know through Jesus. He is the only way. So I have to ask you, do you know Him? Do you know Him? For the troubled heart here that would, that would say, yes, Ryan, I struggle against sin. Yes, I, I have placed my life under His Lordship. I struggle against sin and, and I care about the things He cares about. I do. For, if you are here and you hold your life up to the test of faith and you see that you have placed your trust in Jesus, then I want you to know tonight, God wants you to know that you can rest assured. You can be fully confident in His faithfulness and in His grace. You see, for me, my guilt and my doubt and my regret and my struggle, at some point it all changed for me. And it changed when I, when I realized, when God gave me the understanding to see that I needed to stop asking Jesus into my heart and I needed to start believing the gospel which said that God gave me a new heart. In Christ, I am new. The old has gone and the new has come. So today, rest assured in the newness. God wants you to be certain. He wants you to be assured. If you have changed kingdoms and you have surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Christ. But for those of you who hold your life up to the test of faith and you don't see the marks of Jesus on your life, I implore you, change kingdoms. Change kingdoms. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not even saying it's going to be fun. I'm just saying it's going to be worth it. It is worth it. Change kingdoms. Repent. Believe on the gospel. Because it is only through the gospel that salvation is possible. If, you, if you're here and you don't know, if you aren't confident, if you say, I've never placed my life under Jesus' lordship, I, I've never repented, I've never believed, then I would invite you to do so today. As we read earlier, Romans 10 says that if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouth that God raised Him from the dead, and we will be saved because it is in our hearts that we believe and it is with our mouth that we profess faith and we are saved. So the question is, do you want to do that today? Do you want to profess the belief that you hold in your heart that you want to surrender yourself to Jesus as Lord? You believe all the things that He said as far as you know what He said and you believe that what He did for the on the cross and through the resurrection counted for you, if that's you today and you want to take that step, you want to surrender to His Lordship, I would invite you to do so. You don't have to do anything magical. You don't have to stand up in your chair. You don't do anything. You just have to say with your mouth what you believe in your heart. There's no right way or wrong way to do it. You just say with your mouth what you believe in your heart. And the Bible tells us that God, in that moment, God will save you. He will save you and you can be eternally secure in Him forever. There's another group of people that are here and would say, Ryan, I'm confident. I believe all the things you said and I agree. I, I've placed my life under Jesus' Lordship, but I am in a serious struggle against sin. It's not winning. 
But it is putting up a really, really good fight. And I am tired. I am tired and I need my strength renewed. I am convicted. I feel the Holy Spirit pulling the will. And so here's what I would invite you today. Respond to the pulling of the will. And you respond by confessing your sins. And by asking God to forgive those sins. And and the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and He will forgive them. It says that if we confess our sins one to another, then we will be healed. Confession is a part of the healing process that God uses in the struggle against sin. So if that's you and you say, I'm confident that I have surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus, but I am in a serious struggle, I would invite you to come to the altar and pray. There's nothing magical about walking down the aisle or coming to the altar, but there's something special about it. When we force our bodies to move in the direction of God that our hearts are going, I believe God's right in the middle of that. So we're going to worship, the band's going to come, and they're going to sing. If you are uncertain, unnecessarily troubled, rest assured. If you have never surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Christ, I implore you to do that now. Change kingdoms. Confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart and surrender yourself to His Lordship. And if you're here and you are in a serious struggle against sin, I would invite you to come to confess that sin. And God will be faithful and just. And He will forgive you. Respond to the conviction of God in your heart. Let's pray together. If you will stand with me, we're going to pray. Lord, we love You. We thank You. We trust You. We want You to know that... I want You to know that I'm eternally grateful to You for making it possible for me to be certain that when I am faithless, You are faithful. When I am weak, Your strength is made perfect. That in my sinfulness and in my sinning, Your grace... Your grace meets me there every time. And I thank You that Your grace is transformative, that it does not, it does not leave me there, but that it, it changes me and it sets me on a new course and a new direction. I pray that we would respond to You, God. I pray that Your conviction on us in this room right now would be so heavy and so thick that it is irresistible that we have to respond. We love You more than anything. And we thank You most of all for Jesus. And it's because of Him any of this is possible. In Your name we pray. Amen. I would invite you to come and respond. We're going to worship together and we're going to tell God how much He means to us through song. This is not the time to run out and get to your car first, but it's the time to respond to the Gospel as God would lead. Join us as we worship and we respond to Him.